This is Aisha Tikkun, your host with Indigenous Words and Ideas, the podcast. And for this episode, I wanted to explore um, solidarity, relationality, and transformation. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was I was asked by um, a good friend of mine, Dino Diaz, to participate in a conversation about solidarity and the I figured it'd be a good opportunity to share some of the things that I shared there and um, some of my thoughts since that conversation as well. And kind of thinking about the current context of our world and the uh, global visibility of Black Lives Matter movement in the context of a global pandemic. And so I wanted to begin with kind of thinking about uh, solidarity and that's something I feel is uh, always a bit messy and so the the hope by the end of this is to kind of reflect and explore possibilities of uh, recalibrating um, our solidarity to be more meaningful despite its messiness through ethical relations also um, the role that kind of transformation for ourselves um, plays in in that process as well as broader uh, potentials of transformation. So before I continue, I wanted to just kind of ground it with my approach and perspective in that I'm, in a sense, looking in the mirror and reflecting on things that I'm kind of navigating and struggling through myself and that I recall and remember in my previous ideas and behaviors also. And, and one of the reasons why is because I, I, I remember a time, you know, where, you know, I'd hear stuff from activists and it felt and sounded a lot like, you know, self-righteous condemnation. And it was off-putting. And I just felt like, man, if I wanted to engage with... <laughs> overzealous uh, judgment, then um, I could just find that at church. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, I also, you know, was, even in my early days of university, was just struggling with the elite arrogance of, of some academics. And, you know, it's still the case uh, today, but you know, I just, I remember how those things felt. And a lot of it was because the way things were presented, the way I was hearing them, whether it was from activists or academics, was um, from people who obviously had more experience, knowledge around a particular issue, and were presenting it as if I should have known that or knew that. And in some cases, the tragedy was that I did. You know, I experienced it, but I didn't know it in the way they knew it, right? Or that I could come to know it, you know? And so because of that, that's one of the reasons why just kind of approaching this as a self-reflection and the things that I've learned for myself that I hope might be useful in thinking about um, solidarity and relationality. And so although... You know, my ideas have changed uh, a lot over the years. There's always different moments in which, you know, seeds that were planted previously um, and could nurtured at different times eventually give off fruit. And 
you know, having been given time and space uh, to grow, um, as well as opportunities um, and uh, privileges, even if those are borrowed privileges, have all facilitated my own learning. And so I'm aware that, you know, uh, although it's possible in a variety of different circumstances, your environment, your resources, your access has a, has a, a lot of influence on how we come to see the world just as how we're raised and socialized and, and so forth. So I understand um, that there are challenges and just want to acknowledge that. For me, in thinking about, I guess, messy solidarity is, again, in observing this particular moment, which I think is very significant. It's a, it's It's quite unique. I think it's building off of many different moments that have happened. Um, you know, the black liberation struggle, for example, has been ongoing uh, for centuries, really. Um, but there are also other movements that are fairly recent as well, such as No Dapple, Ihumata, or, or the current struggle still with Mauna Awakea in Hawaii. And I think all of those kind of had some sense of an increased global visibility uh, and were significant in the mainstream participation. And so for me, I, I think that, at least in my view, this is quite a significant moment um, in regards to the potential for transformation and change uh, to the status quo to some degree, at least in a, in a way that um, has yet to occur. But in, in that, you know, I've made some interesting, you know, kind of observations of my, myself and 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 thinking about the the way uh, one supports or attempts to support, you know, a movement that might not be directly personal um, or might be, you know, partially connected um, or, or not at all. Um, how, how is it that we engage uh, with, with that? And how can we engage in it in a meaningful way? For me, the things that have been most useful in my current thinking is seeking understanding first. And I think in the world that we live in and the pace that uh, exists, it's very, you know, it's very uncommon, unfortunately, at least in my experience and observation, uh, to seek understanding first. I feel like there is the, the result of the fast-paced um, information age of the last decade or so, uh, you know, which is only building off of all kinds of other systems as well, um, is a reactionary culture, which is not about listening and understanding. It's about reacting. It's a, it's a sensory-based reaction as well. So people are reacting to uh, sensations, um, uh, triggers, um, rather than um, feeling and and connecting uh, in order to engage. At least that's how how I feel, and I, and and I you know observe this in myself. In you know if I'm moving too fast through things, it is it makes it challenging for me to actually relate in a meaningful way. I believe thinking about you know what is an ideal relationality to me you know the model I have for that is my most close and meaningful relationships and those are ones that are close enough that there's a reciprocal support at different points in time 
uh, but there's also, uh, you know, honest and uncomfortable and challenging uh, moments in those relationships too, because you're close enough to be able to do so. You know, because you you have established a relationship, you're able to have harder and harder kind of conversations, as well as build upon inspiration uh, collectively as well. And and so for me, that's kind of the the goal in uh, solidarity. Uh, but when you don't have a relationship yet, or when you have a you're in an early state of a relationship that you know it's a bit messier as you're feeling each other out and, and trying to figure things out um, or, or if there's a long-standing uh, relationship that's kind of gone in and out or or has forgotten things or, or needs to kind of reestablish itself as well and so that's one of the things that that I've been thinking about is um, how, how can I uh, seek to understand first recognize and find uh, my connection and then meaningfully engage towards uh, the goal of having a long-term meaningful uh, relationship that that can result in an effective solidarity one of the challenges I find though in you know, early stages of messy solidarities is the a dilemma um, that emerges uh, for people who are oppressed in different ways, um, or who are also oppressed, or who have overlapping oppressions. Um, and what ends up happening is uh, it's the it's the diaspora uh, dilemma which I, I referred to in a previous episode, um, which is kind of like, what about us? What about me? What about this? And I believe this is a very limiting um, reaction that kind of cuts off or really hinders the potential for meaningful solidarity. But it is nonetheless understandable. I get it. I mean, for myself, this is something that you know, unfortunately, not too long ago, I was still um, espousing, even if it was just privately. Um, and, and that comes from having a long history of a, a very unique struggle that I felt, you know, hadn't been heard or wasn't known. And and so when I see others, other groups espouse this kind of uh, sentiment, I get it. You know, I, I understand it because I've also experienced it. What can happen is, uh, in the messy engagements, is sometimes a problematic solidarity or straight-up antagonism to the the struggle altogether. Uh, and so, in this current moment, some things that you know I've been thinking about is, you know, on one hand, there's the the example that you know a lot of other you know folks of of who are not black but of of darker color um, who might you know, on one hand, critique white folks in their uh, reaction to Black Lives Matter by saying all lives matter um, or the like might do similar things just in different ways unknowingly and, and maybe even unintentionally um, because of this kind of dilemma that comes from like also being a group that hasn't been heard and who has a unique struggle also. 
and and one of the ways I feel like this is done by brown folks or the way I've been tempted to at times is to see black struggle as the same or and not seeing how it's uniquely different although I do also believe connected to other things and by saying things like oh it's the same struggle I feel like is a, a colorblind approach right and or or rather a selectively color conscious so you're conscious of race and color and the way that op- that operates in our society as arbitrary as it as it is, as it might be as a an idea it's nonetheless being selectively applied right um on the other hand too there's others who may not even want to engage and espouse resentment or might withhold support of a movement that that I believe is important personally, but only because I can see now how it impacts me. If it, it, it affects me in negative ways, if it's not supportive, and in positive ways, if it's successful, um, and that's something that's kind of always been the the case. But the dilemma of being kind of fragmented or pitted against each other in kind of the the age-old divide-and-conquer logic um, can make it difficult at times to see how this plays out. And and so I think it's important to understand the particularities of our difference and make efforts to to see each other, to, to understand each other. The closest relationships that I have are with with people who I know well enough that I can speak to the to the nuances and the specificities and the circumstances, and I believe that that's also necessary to have a meaningful solidarity, to to have a, a spectrum of understanding of diversity within a particular issue and struggle. Because the closer you look at anything, you're going to find increasingly how complex it is, and it gets more and more complicated. The more complicated it gets, the more complex it gets. Um, for me, the better. That means um, the relationship is closer, the knowledge is uh, more uh, intense and meaningful, and and also I think the potential increases as well. And so, while on one hand I'm, I'm you know s- stressing you know understanding particularities, and I really do think it's important. So you know we're looking at issues of racism. Uh, I think in this particular moment, it's important to also understand the kind of the specific iterations of anti-black racism. Yet while doing so, I don't think it's necessary to forget our connections and and other entanglements that are, are part of this as well. One of the things that I've experienced in myself, like one of the reasons why it was hard for me in the past to to see other struggles and support them in meaningful ways was um, because I had been so deprived of uh, knowledge of my own that I spent a lot of time, you know, researching um, colonial history in Mesoamerica, in Guatemala, the the civil war there, um, the, the diaspora and displacement, um, the, the continual um, struggles with you know you know imperial involvement violence political economic um, strategies to subjugate uh, and and the more you look at only one thing it becomes very easy to see and hear what you want to 
and to see that as the only thing. And so I try to steer away from anything that becomes kind of isolationist or purist or rigid or a, a centric project. Um, I believe the it's important to understand specificities, yet also important to understand larger structures and uh, global uh, connections to to particular issues. And uh, you know, when it comes to race and, and racism, it is such a pervasive um, ideology that stems from a long-standing system, albeit not one that has been around forever in this particular form, it, certainly not one that uh, can't be contested either. And so in kind of thinking about that, to to share another point, this is from Ibram X. Kendi and his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I, I like the way he frames this because um, it acknowledges the, the distinct you know, experience and uniqueness, but also gives room for its spectrum as well as its connection to a variety of other connected systems. And so he says here, I still identify as black, not because I believe blackness or race is a meaningful scientific category, but because our societies, our policies, our ideas, our histories, and our cultures have rendered race and made it matter. I am among those who have been degraded by racist ideas, suffered under racist policies, and who have nevertheless endured and built movements and cultures to resist or at least persist through this madness. I see myself culturally and historically and politically in blackness, in being an African American, an African, a member of the forced and unforced African diaspora. I see myself historically and politically as a person of color, as a member of the Global South, as a close ally of Latinx, East Asian, Middle Eastern, and Native peoples, and all the world's degraded peoples, from the Roma and Jews of Europe, to the Aboriginals of Australia, to the white people battered for their religion, class, gender, transgender identity, ethnicity, sexuality, body size, age, and disability. The gift of seeing myself as black instead of being colorblind is that it allows me to clearly see myself historically and politically as being an anti-racist, as a member of the interracial body striving to accept and equate and empower racial difference of all its kinds. Close quote. And so I, I, I really appreciate the way that um, Kendi expresses that, uh, you know, being uh, real realistic to um, the experiences of modern society and in particular in the US for him um, but also the complexity and interconnections with a variety of other different systems and so for myself in trying to to be uh, in better relation and solidarity instead of saying things like oh it's the same struggle uh, I I believe that, uh, other ways that we can express this or that I that I am trying to express it is that we are differently similar or similarly different in our common struggles for liberation that are connected in different ways. I don't espouse to there being 
one primary issue, but rather accept the reality that I see in the mirror, uh, which is a complex, contradictory, and and you know, diverse person that is embodies many identities. Um, I have brown skin. I identify as an urban diasporic Maya of a variety of lineages. I also have African and European ancestry as well, you know, Arab and Jewish also. And I also understand that those other identities that I have have not been how I have been racialized in the different societies that I've lived in. And I may not have the cultural knowledge of all of them to the same degree either. And so... Uh, I get that. And I ended up growing up with people of the Moana. So a lot of my closest relations and colleagues are Tongan, Samoan, uh, Maori, um, and of other places as well. And so that's part of who who I am. And I'm all those things all at once. I'm also Mormon. And uh, although there's a complicated relationship there as well in the way that I, I see things, uh, versus the 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 legacy or mainstream um, practices, and so th- all those things exist at the same time. And I think by doing that, looking in the mirror, like it opens up, okay, the possibility of looking at um, solidarity across connected struggles. And so it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be racism and understanding both white supremacy and anti-blackness and also the other iterations of racism in that spectrum and it can also be capitalism and the alienation and enclosure as well as the subjugation of the proletariat across gendered racialized and classed lines and it can also be heteropatriarchy and the ways in which homophobia, transphobia, and sexism um, operate. And it can also be coloniality and the different iterations of that, such as settler colonial nation-states, um, nation-state formations and nationalist ideology, the, the role of Christianity and uh, religion, um, as well as imperial uh, violence and backing to uphold and uh, spread uh, colonial ideas and logics. And then everything else that, you know, is connected to that, branches from that, emerges out of that. And so for me, that's one of the reasons why I like the theory of coloniality, because it proposes a, a, a matrix of power which for me opens up the possibility of seeing multiple systems of power that emerge um, either at the same time simultaneously or around the same time that reinforce each other um, and transform uh, together. And so I think that that's possible to understand the specificity and support and and learn those nuances as well as seeing how it's connected on a within a matrix of, of many systems of, of power that we face in our in, in our modern paradigm.
And so to wrap up this um, episode, I just wanted to uh, share a little bit about my observations of, of this moment and the timing in the hopes of improving, uh, you know, our, our relational ethics in solidarity uh, with this particular movement and its um, and its distinct issues, as well as uh, kind of understanding how it's connected to larger issues and struggles for liberation. And, you know, this moment is hugely significant. And I think all the previous things that have happened uh, that were visible um, contributed to it. Um, and there's also a lot of other movements that didn't get the same kind of global visibility either. I mean, it wasn't that long ago either that um, in Ishimuleo, Guatemala, um, there was the movement of Paro Nacional where they literally ousted the president. And I mean, that's possible in other places if you have a global perspective and see other things that are happening in different parts of the world. They don't all operate with the same apparatus and don't always have the same visibility all of the time. I think this this current uh, moment is significant because this is a struggle that's been going for a long time and being Black Lives Matter and has been going for quite a while. But I believe that the current um, people in office, uh, such as in the United States, um, as well as the global pandemic that forced the world to slow down and um, allowed for, I believe, an increased awareness and mindfulness to things that have been going on for ages, uh, I believe were significant contributing factors to this moment. One of the reasons why it has been so momentous and, and seen global um, expressions of, in some cases, messy solidarity and in others, more meaningful solidarity, um, but nonetheless, uh, global action and response. And so one of the things that I wanted to share is that what, because I'm making these observations, this is coming from, you know, some of the ideas that come out of Tavaism that I have expressed in a previous episode, uh, especially in, with the, in the Talanoa with uh, uh, Dr. Tevita Kaili. Um, but there's another element that I see within kind of being mindful of, of temporality and spatial relations, and that is uh, Noah. And Noah is um, interchangeable with another concept, Ngofua, a, a moment of neutrality, equilibrium, or balance, or the process of creating balance and equilibrium. And it's related to other concepts such as manna, which um, is potency, energy, authority, honor, and tapu, which is protective uh, restrictions, uh, setting apart. And when those are calibrated, uh, both the potency and the protections of it and from it, you create no or a equilibrium uh, between them, or you neutralize it, allowing for other possibilities to emerge, or allowing for things that are usually protected and set apart to be, uh, not to be in that moment, or to be faced in different ways. And for me, this is very um, similar, or I will say similarly equivalent, to uh, the Mayan concept of zero, or waish, uh, which is in 
the Quiche and Cachique languages. Um, in Quiche, there's also the word Tah, which is with a numerical value of zero. And zero is, is huge. I'm not going to go into all of it right now, um, but just to introduce it, you know, it's, ultimately it's what allows for the idea of infinity or eternity, right? Because everything must begin and end in zero. We have positive and negative that all run through uh, zero. And, you know, it's not only a placeholder that allows for deep time um, and, and is connected to ecological and astronomical observations and calculations uh, and calibrations, it is also socially uh, performed um, within the social constructs of time or different temporalities within different Maya ceremony and ritual, at least in my perspective, understanding, and view, where the purpose of those, uh, or at least one of the purposes, is to collapse time in space and vice versa, uh, similar to gnaw, right? You're neutralizing something socially um, and can be increased in potency with alignments uh, when you have multiple alignments, such as ecological or astronomical ones, in the timing. And so um, it's all those things that, for me, influence my observation of this current moment uh, being particularly significant with uh, the catalyzation of the global pandemic, right, and the and the natural phenomena of this particular virus and how it has transmitted um, across species and impacted the world in a in quite a unique way, uh, and part of that is because of the the intensity in which it's doing so, uh, because of the population density we have today and the late stages of capital that we're also in, and the climate crisis that we're also currently in. And so, although I believe we could predict yet another rupture, um, because there have been multiple, whether we go back to Ferguson, whether we go back to L.A., or whether we go back to Watts and looking at the U.S., for example, I believe it's you know it's not hard to predict that as long as this is happening, there's going to be another rupture. But the rupture that happened at this moment and in this way, I believe, is in alignment with all those other things. And so the other part of this uh, of Noah and and Weish, um zero, uh, at least in in my understanding and what I would propose is that it has a transformation potential. Um, in the same way that it can for individuals and communities within ritual, I believe it also applies on a larger scale socially um, within society um, and culturally within uh, the signs and symbols that give meaning to uh, the way we understand and see the world. Um, and other ways that zero has been uh, expressed by other uh, indigenous scholars who are not Maya, but who I believe um, have some great insights on it. Uh, one is from Jody Bird, and she uh, explained the Mayan concept of zero as a moment um, in which uh, past futures and future presents uh, emerge within both creation and destruction. 
then there's also um, Cheyenne scholar uh, Leo Kilsbeck, who I referenced in a previous episode on modernity and indigeneity, who makes a really interesting um, observation of how uh, society was socially constructing time or calibrating social time with um, ecological movements and would allow societies to die, which is why there was conscious abandonment of a variety of um, Maya city-states as populations consciously left and then moved into other sites and after a period of time would then do the same thing. And so he, he argues that that is part of this. And so I, I agree and I like the way they articulate it. Um, there's a lot of others like Leon Portillo who writes quite a bit about Mayan time as well that um, that have influenced me in the way that I think about it. And so for me, as as I'm, I'm observing and learning from this moment and trying to uh, find meaningful solidarity through uh, through recalibration of our relationality uh, by acknowledging and seeing the connection we have because we share this planet, do we not? We share the air, we share the sun, um, we share the moon. These are things that whether we like it or not, we share with all of the species and relations we have here. And so um, in that kind of pragmatism, on one hand, and in the critical hope for a more uh, liberated world that is less harmful, more uh, in line with balance uh, between all of our relations. I, I, I like thinking about this moment as a potential zero, right? A reset. Um, a creative destruction or a destructive creativity, and when I say that, I I I don't mean to uh, for that to be interpreted um, within kind of mainstream understandings or ideas of morality, but rather creative being the process of forming and shaping and transforming out of what already exists and that we inherit because. We don't make things out of nothing. And then destruction, um, again, not to be assumed to be kind of a, a, a negative morality, but rather more a mathematical or a physical uh, destruction in uh, deconstructing, dismantling as the simultaneous process between creativity, right? Because you make something out of something, that one thing has to be broken down in order for that other thing to emerge and so in that sense is is where i see the potential um in this moment and many other moments um that have preceded it that i like to to think about so for me this is the lens in which i i, I see these observations and the potential for uh transformation of new beginnings in the past that is present and the future that is present which is now um, and it is in this state of zero, uh, a liminal state, if you will, that of neutrality, where the potential emerges uh, for this. And so it's the in-between point between creation and destruction, which is a high-energy 
point, which is very, very potent. You know, it can it's very it can be very dangerous. Um, and so just because it's neutralized doesn't mean it doesn't have that. And it can go in a variety of directions. I'm just critically hopeful that it leads to opening up more possibilities of a more relationally mindful world because we are connected and we can acknowledge that and find better ways to relate and we'll, re we'll be recalibrated. I mean, this is not something new for, for me as a Maya and the stories that I've inherited. Um, there have been several new beginnings of societies in the past. Will this be one uh, step closer to, to another one? I don't know. But that's just the thoughts that I had that I wanted to share with all of you. Um, thanks for listening. Um, and until the next time, Sibalak Matyosh, many thanks.